Hi, welcome to What Chance. I'm your host, Karin Elias. This podcast is about people who have been to prison. It's about their life before and after prison. I talk to educators, social workers, activists, and the formerly incarcerated. I want to find out what happened. Are some people at higher risk of going to prison? And what is it like to reintegrate into society? What does the justice system and society really care about? Punishment or rehabilitation? Come, join me. My guest today is Glenn Cox. Welcome, Glenn. You are an artist, you paint, and you also sing. You are a Manhattan subway train singer, is that correct? That's correct. So tell me a little more about that. Well, we go down every day from Mondays to Friday, and we sing from 14th Street to the Bronx to 125th Street on the two train. And so that's with a group? Yes, there's four of us. And we stay out there oh, about, say, two and a half, three hours. And you sing what kind of music? We sing R&B music, Temptation music, Four Tops, Barry Manilow, believe it or not, yeah, you know, a few others, Beat on Rolling Stone songs, you know. Nice, nice. And so when did you start this? In 2012. 2012. So what happened in 2012 that make you, made you start this? Well, at the time, um, I was working at McDonald's. I was on a subway train heading to work, and a group came past me singing a Christmas song that I knew, and I joined in, and the guy gave me his card, and it took about two months for me to call, because I was working, and I needed some consistent. I didn't think they made that much money. Well, they made uh, construction money. What I mean by that, they make about $90 to $100 a day each. So uh, I tried it. The first day, I think I made $78. So I went home and told my friend, they said, try it again tomorrow. Second time, I made $128. Well, I've been doing that ever since. And um, I met some beautiful people. When the pandemic came, it kind of slowed everybody down. So now that the people are coming back into the city, we're back and go from 14th Street now to 81st Street or the C train. Sometimes the A train. Take the A train. Yeah. <laughs> We're basically, I think, the best group out there. He's got us on TV a few times. Marathons for the mayor's office at Tavern on the Green. Carmine's restaurant. TV show called The Fish Center. I think next one in the Pocono. Yeah. So... Music is a big part of your life now. Was it a big part in your early life? Because as I understand, at some point you worked for the city of New York as a counselor. Yes, I did a child care counselor. That was a very challenging job. I was a drug addicted parent. They would give their children up to the city and we would take care of them. And they had a big institution in the Bronx, a community of drugs, crime, and overpopulation. It's no wonder that these kids went through the struggle that they did. And they came into our facility angry, 
very hurt and broken. So we had to counsel these kids and get these kids to trust us and to give them confidence in themselves. That was a good job because it uh, helped me develop within my own self for my children. So that was a time when you felt you had a good job and you were, you know, you were stable in your life. You enjoyed your life with your children, but then something happened in 1989. Yes, ma'am. I was in a very very toxic relationship, but uh, had to stay because I had responsibility of a child. I was 35 or 36 at the time. Had a great job um, running the house that involved with drugs. My drug of choice at the time was uh, cocaine. Dealing with the cocaine, even though you're working, you're a functional addict, you're dealing with a lot of unsavory people. One night we had a party at my house. The guy down the hall, he was an alcoholic. He worked for an ambulance company in Queens. I worked as a child care counselor. My lifestyle was to work every day, but when I got paid, I would do to get my drugs and go to a place and take care of my thing with a couple of women. And his thing was to go to the bar on Broadway. Eventually, uh, me and my uh, other spouse, we broke up. She took the child and I stayed where we, I was at and held the apartment down. And this gentleman who was in the apartment just moved in down the hall. So one day I came home from work. He had asked me if I could get some girls. And I told him, let me see what I could do. And I did get these girls. And we had a party because there was nobody in the house but ourselves. And we were partying, having a good time. Everything was going fine. One thing led to another. We ran out of drugs. So I decided to go out and get some more beer, some more drugs came back in the house about an hour and a half later and went upstairs and the lights were on and I heard music. So I peeked in his apartment and saw Jennifer there on the couch and Susan and him came from down the hall from my apartment. We were going to go in his apartment. He seemed to be very on edge, started arguing. I asked him, was everything all right? And he said, everything was all right. So we started to go to his apartment. Susan wanted to go downstairs. So she went home. Jennifer was still there. So we're all talking. The next thing you know, I'm hitting the head with the police flashlight. I managed to block the next one. And I kicked him. And he fell back against the wall. And I ran out to my apartment and closed the front door. And I went down the hall to see how bad I was. And my whole front of my head could see the white meat. And I was bleeding from my head. So I had a towel wrapped my head. And there was a hospital about four blocks down. So I was going to go down there and get stitches. There was a fire department down the street. When I started to go to the hospital, my front door came crashing open. The hall light was off, but there was the moonlight shining through the window. And I saw it just flickering. And I didn't know what it was. But when he got to my bedroom where the light was on, it was a summarized sword. I had no weapons. And I was in my bedroom, already wounded. And he chased me around my bed with his sword, stabbing and, sw- and swiping. And at one time, he swung. almost got my eye, but he caught me over my eye. I was trying to talk this man down, yelling his name. He kept chasing me. And he swung one more time and missed. And I rushed him. And we fell to the floor. Somehow, we fell to the floor. The sword broke in half, and I grabbed the blade of the 
end of the sword. And I got to my feet first and he still had a Bowie knife on his side. He always carried a Bowie knife within the legal six inches. We lived in the Bronx. We didn't live in a rough neighborhood. We lived in Riverdale. And that's an upstanding neighborhood. Private houses, mixed community, senior citizens, community block watch. So it was a safe neighborhood. Never understood why he carried that knife. When he got to his feet and he started to try to come at me, I hit him in the head twice. He fell against the wall and the ridge of the handle of the sword had cut his head. When he falls against the wall, he's incapacitated. I think he's out. Then this man has this knife and makes the attempt for the knife. So I take my foot and kick the knife from his hand. I yell for Jennifer. She's still in his apartment. She's afraid because she hears the ruckus down the hall and she don't know who's alive, who's dead. She comes down and she sees me all covered in blood and he's on the floor. And she said, you look like you're not gonna make it. And she saw him and looked like he wasn't gonna make it. I told her to go down to the uh, fire department and they called the police, but I'm still able to uh, help this man. And he's having a problem breathing. I was a lifeguard for six years in my hometown, um, nurse show. So I'm giving this man CPR. Now, mind you, here's a man that tried to kill me. And I'm here to give this man CPR. And it came naturally. When they came there, the police and the EMS, they saw me giving this man CPR still. They finally came in, walked in slowly, and they assisted the man. And I stood up. And they asked, whose apartment was this? The first question I said, this is mine. They said, you have any proof? And I said, yes, my rent receipt book is right there on the bureau. And they read it and they found out that it was mine. And they said, do you have any ID? And I gave my identification card and they found out that I worked for the same or agency they did, but I was in childcare. So they said, well, he's one of ours. So they looked at each other and I said, well, what you gonna do with this guy? And they said, well, Mr. Cox, this man doesn't look like he's gonna make it. And you kind of bad off too. First, I have to place you under arrest. And they said, the girl did say that he chased you to your apartment. They had her downstairs, Jennifer, in their police car. They didn't allow her to come back up. And they said, but well, we have to let a judge decide. We are this officer detective. So here I go, handcuffed. They allowed me to get dressed, New Year's Eve. And uh, they took me to the hospital first, got stitches. And I had uh, bruised ribs. And I think my wrist was fractured. And he was still there. And they took me to the police station and had me in a cell for like three or four hours. And the phone finally rang about two in the morning. And I remember it was quiet and his office was, was dark, but he had like a reading light over his desk and he answered the phone. And you could only see the silhouette of his man's head. You couldn't see the details of this detective's face. And he said, yes, I understand. Okay. And he hung the phone up and I asked him, who was that? And he said, that was a hospital. And I said, well, what did they say? How's the man doing? And he said, he, um, the gentleman passed away. And I said, oh my God. And I knew I was done for. And the only reason is because he was European and I was black. I still knew that I didn't stand a chance, even at that age, and was never involved with the police, never had no problem, no felony, no misdemeanor, no nothing. But I knew inside of myself, 
Because the town that I lived in, Riverdale, I knew that I was finished. And I was. Before they took me to the hospital, they took me to the police department. And they put me in a holding cell. And they handcuffed me under the bench like a dog. They had me sit on the floor. And my head was bleeding. And they said, well, sometimes we have to do that to people who are dangerous. I had no weapons on me. I was incapacitated. But it was a racist move. So there you were attacked, defending yourself. You made it, and then you end up being arrested. I was arrested. And you end up being charged for killing the man? Yeah, at first it was an assault, but once he passed, the charges anted up to manslaughter one and second degree murder. How can that be when this man attacked me? How, I mean, how did that feel? Like you. It must have totally surprised you that you end up in front of a jury convicted. Was there, there was no witness that could describe what happened? Now, here's the girl. Now, they had a for the testimony in the grand jury. Her name was Jennifer. And she had made statement. Now, she became the DA's witness because they found out that she had open warrants on her for vagarism and all kind of stuff. So... What they did was gave her option. Either say it like we want you to say it, or we'll get you for these warrants. Now, in trial, my lawyer, he said, in the grand jury, you said, when you went down to Glenn's uh, bedroom, he had his foot on the radiator saying he killed this white guy with the part of the sword in his hand. Now, the police officers said, when they got to the house, they made you stay in the patrol car. And when they came down, the detective of the patrol and the EMS came down, they all testified. We saw Mr. Cox giving the man CPR. So my lawyer put her back on the stand and say, who are we supposed to believe? You or these people who get paid professionally to do this? And she burst out in the trial and said, well, they made me say this. So the judge said, who made you say this? And she said the DA. So the, the judge called a uh, recess and they all went to the bench. And that's when I started drawing a kangaroo court because I knew after that it should have been a mistrial. Now, I didn't know law too much, but when I went to Rikers Island and to go to Rikers Island, that's like being sent to hell. If you ever heard about Rikers Island and never been there, first time in prison, that's like being sent in front of the devil. Okay, it's mayhem there. So now I'm there, but I had to go to the law library and learn a little bit of law to save my life. And it's supposed to have been a mistrial, but they didn't make a mistrial. I thought, tell the truth, defending yourself, no problem. That's a lie. You got the judge who works for the city of the state. You got the DA who works for the city of the state. And you got the legal aid who works for the city of the state. Even though it's a defense lawyer is still the same city of the state team. They go to lunch together. You give us this nigga here and we'll let you have the next one. And that's how they do. Four years later, I'm in Attica playing convict. I'm in Attica's law library and you got some wizards, some legal wizards, convicts that have been there for 25, 30 years. They know law better than lawyers out here. So let me just go back for a moment. So because, so you said, even though it turned out that the witness 
was coerced into saying something, the judge kind of ignored that and went on and you were convicted, you ended up in prison. Exactly. Yeah. So now they went back and kept on with the trial. The jury happened to be some retired COs. So COs are corrections officers. Yes, yes. Retired police officers. They were not impartial witnesses. No, they were not and, impartial jury. And the jury foreman was a parole officer. It took my trial. It took a week. It took them only five hours. Let's get this black man out of here. So, and at this point, you also had a child, right? I had more than one child. Yeah. Three daughters and two sons. So um, now suddenly you end up in prison and what happened with your well, relationship with, to your children? Well, the relationship with my children continued because I wrote them three times a week, stayed in touch. And the little money I was making up there, a little $20, $20 every two weeks, I was ordering things for them. So they liked my art. It was never about me. It was always about them. They used to come in the bedroom when I was home. And they used to always ask on Saturday at 7, Daddy, could we watch cartoons? And I knew the cartoons that they liked. Sent them a lot of gifts. Sent them a lot of money as they got older. And now the girls joined their little um, seventh grade JB football. They're cheerleaders now. I watched that stage. Now they're getting into high school and they're starting, you know, to meet guys. They're telling me about this. And I'm telling, I'm trying to scare these girls. Don't mess around and have sex because it's like getting getting a needle in your arm and that hurts. I tried to scare them from having sex until I got home. I was about 40 years old, but that don't work. Nature takes over. And they had babies, you know, they had to go through that process. And one of my daughters, she wanted to go to college. And she was a single mother, so she needed money. And she was beautiful. She's beautiful. So she asked me, how would I feel if she was dancing in a um, nightclub as a stripper? Oh, man, that was a hard one. I didn't want my daughter doing that. She said, Daddy, you know, it's just for, you know, part-time. I need that money for school. So I said, you can promise me you can keep it clean. And she had a boyfriend at the time, but he wasn't doing anything. My father passed away at that time. So he left me a little money and I sent her some money and to help her get a car. And she did it for a while. When I finally got home, she asked, Dad, why did you tell me to go ahead? I said, well, I felt that I wasn't in your life anymore physically, only mentally. And I didn't have the right to tell you not to make money. And I had faith in the information that myself and your mother gave you that you wouldn't sink to the base levels of this business. You were disciplined enough, but she wanted to hear me tell her no. And I felt bad to this day. Well, you know, and I'm imagining, so there's so much happening. Layers, layers of stuff. This lie caused that created a lot of hurt, not just to myself, to others. But now let me tell you, I'm the first one. I don't ever blame nobody because when I went away, I was in that dark state of mentality. Now the legal aspect is their fault, but the responsibility of me being in this situation was my fault. Because number one, that the drug use. I had a great job living in a nice house. Drug use brings you around toxic people who have issues also, psychological, anger issues, 
ego issues. They morph into the Hulk. I don't know what it is. You know, they just become this monster. It's unbelievable. Nice people just morph like that. And these things you welcome into your environment and your life and your psyche. And at the end of the day, when it's over and your high comes down and you come back to your senses, you say, it wasn't worth this at all. And I lost part of my life, most yeah. of my life. You know, I had to watch my kids grow up from, from writing letters. So what happened for you then when you ended up in prison and then I guess you had time to reflect back on that? How did you emotionally digest this? And I suppose you made a shift. What was helpful for you? Well, let me tell you, before I made this shift, I was fighting with myself. And I had dreams of six months straight of this thing playing out over and over again. And the reason why I know this is because the, the convicts around me, they would hear me they'd talk in my sleep. And then finally, after the six months, I started coming back to where I wasn't dreaming anymore. So there must have been a struggle there. Still kind of angry, did a lot of praying. I was in Attica. I'm going along with the program, not giving anybody any trouble. Through the stress of 15 of life, and not seeing my children anymore, and my father. I blew out my, my thyroid gland, and right away my blood pressure flies up. I'm way high, I can feel my heart, and my weight, I go from something like 190 to 140 rapidly, and I thought that I had HIV or AIDS. So they put me in the hospital in Fishkill downstate, and they take tests on me. And the next day they tell me, and Mr. Cox, you have Graves' disease. Now, when they say Graves' disease, you figure that's a grave. You know, I'm going to die, you know. But I was welcoming death. I said, good, because I ain't got to do this prison time, this long prison sentence. And they said, no, it's treatable. And I was angry. I said, I'm going to die. And he says, no, Mr. Cox, it's treatable. You're going to live. I said, damn it. And they gave me heart medication. They sent me to specialists. And then they gave me medication. But after that, I started to be so angry. I'd go to the church in Attica and sit in the back and talk to myself, plague with depression. And there, you know, we have to deal with depression on our own, within ourselves, on our own. You can't even talk about it. Convicts consider it as a thing of weakness. They'll prey on you. So you got to deal with depression in all stages of depression by yourself and locked in a cell. You can't be vulnerable in prison. Not when I was in Attica, the time I was there, you could not be vulnerable. That's a sign of weakness. Uh, you're crying. You, you're afraid. You're weak. Now they start moving. The wolves start moving in on you for your, for your commissary, your personal things. Then they're going to start wanting you to have money sent to their account from home. We can't have that. So you hold it within and you deal with it with your own self. And finally, I learned, I learned to let go. I was angry at God for a long time. I think I stopped praying for four years. And uh, my father passed away. And him passing away, it gave me the opportunity to come out and be driven to his, his wake. So I saw some family members I hadn't seen in a long time. Back to Sing Sing, in that roach-infested place, Sing Sing is so infested with roaches that when they turn lights out, you have to put toilet paper in your ears keep your mouth closed because you have to take a, a sheet and tie it around your mouth because the roaches they come out and there's millions of them 
at night when the lights are off. And they go in your ears, they go in your mouth. These guys will go to the hospital outside to get them out of their ears. If you use the toilet, when you flush the toilet, you can see the baby roaches coming out of the streams of the water, the toilet. It's unbelievable. Oh, you got to stand on the toilet, use the toilet. Oh, my God. Sing Sing is the worst, worst prison in New York. And it was 17 years you spent inside altogether? I remember every day of the 17, every day. People say, I don't know how you did it. Every day of the 17 years that I served, I remember every day, every event. I remember uh, I had a fight with this guy, this young guy. I don't know. He just kept picking. So we went to the bathroom. We fought. Ended up in the box for 30 days. Then um, his officer, he, uh, I was working. Uh, my job was to clean the, uh, the day room floor, clean the windows. I always did my job. always did my job. But this other guy who was uh, friends with the officer, he said, oh, I'll get cops to do it. And I said, I'm not doing it. He's right there. I'm not doing this job. And so they said, give me your ID. So I took the ID and threw it at the officer, hit him in the chest. So they came and locked me up 30 days again <laughs> for that. What I'm do you mean they locked you up in solitary? Solitary confinement. Yeah. With, with just your underwear on, it's freezing. Really? And, yeah, it's freezing up there. And I, at the time, Amy Fisher, she had shot Jerry Butterfuco, and I was right across the grounds from her. I was in Orleans and she was in a woman's facility. And wow, it's crazy up there. I learned a lot in the box. It was cold. It was, I had to use my mattress. I had to, we had spring beds. I had to use the mattress for a blanket and my coat as a pillow. I'll never forget that. They teach you terrible up there. And then finally they give you clothes and uh, you get a shower twice a week. When you finish your time, you go back to your house. And at this time, I, my house was 90 people in a, in a dorm, double bunks. It was like a big barn, like a homeless shelter. Murderers, rapists, child molesters, sneak thieves, drug addicts. And you have to get along with these people. I've seen people get stabbed right there in front of me. I see people get, their face get sliced so bad where the food falls out the side to the floor of the blood. I've seen that in Attica. That traumatized me because it happened like three feet in front of me at the mess hall. And, you know, so do you think that if you saw somebody getting their face sliced and the rice and the peas falling out of their side of their face with the blood to the floor, that's not normal. And, but you got to endure this. And you're traumatized. And one time, I worked in the mess hall. They had a guy, a group, a gang, had stabbed this guy in the mess hall and ran him under the, the table. They dropped the gas on us. It was a riot. And we were all rendered unconscious from the strength of the tear gas. Before I was immobilized myself, there was a cook who was coughing. And he was immobilized, holding his eyes. He couldn't breathe. So I took my shirt off and wrapped it around his mouth and his nose so he'd get himself together. And the officers came out and they saw him and they got him. They told me, thank you. And they brought him back in, but kept us out in the mess hall in the chaos. So finally they run us outside and they got the officers with the rifles pointing down at us. That's not normal. That's traumatic. First time. And it's freezing. This is Atticus, almost near Canada. 
And it's about this day, about 20 some odd degrees outside. All we had was shirts and pants. And we were out there from nine o'clock until 11, 11.30. And they had the rifles pointed down us, you know. So they eventually let us back inside and they made us all strip down, naked, march back to our cells. So we stayed in our cells for three days and they finally let us go back to work. When I went back to the mess hall, the civilians and everybody was congratulating me and cheering me on. I didn't understand what was going on. And they said, well, you know, they want to see you in the back. So I went to the back and the civilians, they called me in the office and they gave me uh, a thank you for saving their civilian cook. So that's no big thing. I don't need no rods for that. That's the humanity thing you do, you know. And um, they gave me some kind of citation from the ward. So I said, wow, this might come in handy at my first parole board. Maybe we can let this guy go. But first, before that, let's go back to the 15th of life. So now, four years later, four and a half, I, I do a motion, me and this guy, who's an excellent inmate legal um, counsel. We get it down to my lawyer in New York. He puts it in. We get called down for a time cut. I got four and a half years in already. Everybody's telling me, this is your first time, Cox, they're going to let you go. And the circumstances or whatever happened, they're going to let you go. So I go back down to New York. I see my kids at Rikers Island. Everything is fine. Okay. I'm down here for three months and I get resentenced. I go in front of the same judge. It took me to court three times. I went in front of three different judges. And two of them said, we can't resent you because the judge that you blew trial from, he has to resent you. I knew I was doomed again because she's mad because the appellate division overturned her, her first conviction. So now it makes her look like she's incompetent. So now they take me to her and she sentenced me. I don't agree, this is what she says on the record. I don't agree with the appellate division. I believe they made a mistake. I think my minimum of giving this man 15 in life was adequate. Being in the circumstances, man defended himself, okay? They broke it down from murder to, to manslaughter one. She said, I'm gonna give him the max of the manslaughter and send him back upstate. Now, I'm just a puppet. They don't give a damn. It's me doing the time. So now I'm back upstate. Let me just clarify this. So you were inside for about four years and then your case was looked at again? Yes, ma'am. And at that point, it was reduced to manslaughter. People said I could have got a justifiable homicide, but I had the right to defend myself. But they say in the state of New York, they don't give that to people. But you do see state cases cited in New York State, justifiable homicide. They didn't give it to me, once again, because I'm a black man, and this is the white man. And that's how I was then. The judge could have re-honored herself had she had got out of her own emotions and own racist thinking, her and the DA, and said, well, we got 40 years out of this man illegally, let him go. But no. So I had to do four more years to my first parole board. And I figured, now I know I'll get a break. I did eight years. So eight years now, first parole board is coming up. And now every parole board is two years before you see the next one. I got denied. My kids are thinking I'm coming home, my father, everybody. So it's two more years to the next one. I go to my next parole board. 
They hit me again. Now, that's 12 years they got out of me. So I got to think of stories to tell my daughters and my father. Third parole, my father passed away. So Soon. three times you were denied parole. No, 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 five times. Five times you were denied. Five, five times. These people will make sure, even though they reversed my case from the 15 to life and brought it down to my new sentence from eight and a third to 25, so they could still get 17 years out of me. Do they have to justify why they deny you parole? Yeah, well, they said, well, violent crime. And this is how it went. And I had five parole boards. I had to bear down and just keep myself healthy, educate myself, stayed in the library, reading books, and getting ready for my re-entry. After all this time, life has changed outside. What was your preparation like for re-entry? Well, when I came home, man, uh, I really didn't have anybody. Everybody in my family passed away. So it was just me and my kids were in other states and they had their own problems. I don't believe in me bothering my children for my problems. They sent me home, sent me to that facility called Queensboro facility. It's a release center. You're there for a month and they release you from there to the streets. But you can't go home unless you have an address. Now you didn't have one. But they had this organization called Ready, Willing, and Able that takes convicts in and gives them jobs, clothing, saves their money, feeds them a place to stay, and you got to pay rent. So I joined up for that, and they gave me opportunity. And for a year, they helped me get my ID out here. It bugged me. I saw people talking to themselves. I was completely crazy, bugged out. But then I saw these things on the air flashing. It's my, you know, it's a Bluetooth. They're not talking to themselves, you know. <laughs> Never saw a cell phone. When I left, they had beepers. And the big cell phones that looked like military cell phones, walkie-talkies. That was late 87, 88, 89. I had to get the bus one time. And they had these new things called Metro cars. Mm. What the heck is that? I didn't know how to even use the machine. So this woman, I didn't want to tell her I came out of prison. I didn't scare So I explained that I had just for 17 years, I've been away and I need help. And she was kind enough to help me. And she got me a round, round ticket and told me how to use it. I kept using it wrong, a bloop, bloop, and the bus was full, everybody was going to work. I was so embarrassed. I was dressed nice, looking for a job. And I was in college, going to ASA college. I was so humiliated and embarrassed, and I was so humiliated, I started sweating. And every time I put it in, I turned it around, go boop, I flip it around, boop, and everybody's looking, I'm looking, oh my gosh. And the bus driver said, what's wrong, brother? I said, I just came home, man. I've been gone for almost two decades. I said, can you help me out? He said, yeah. He said, just flip it around where the strip is on the right side. And I was so humiliated at work, but I stayed right near him. I didn't move. It was hard for me to adjust to the big crowds walking in Manhattan. It was frustrating. It was hard for me to adjust on waiting for buses and trains. Because this is a new thing now. Now you got to wait for stuff. Now there's no more walking in a circle in the yard behind other people going one way. People are coming at you all kind of ways, like a fish, a fish tank. All different types of fish, all colors and shapes and, and different kinds. 
going every kind of way and you got to watch out. So that took about, I came home in 07, that took about 09, 010 to get used to. I couldn't be around a lot of people. I felt closed in, I felt uh, paranoid. So I got standing against the wall and let people go by until everybody went by and I would get in the back of the crowd. Just got out of that two years ago. That took me about 10 years to get out of it. So there is this trauma of prison that takes you all this time to heal and adjust back to the freedom which you wanted, but that also brings challenges. Yes, ma'am. I sleep very light, talk to myself a lot because uh, I had no family. I didn't get no mail for 12 years. Didn't get a visit until the 16th year. The seventh year, and then I stopped my younger son's mother. Then no more until the 16th year. Talk to myself a lot. Still struggle with that a little bit. I had to do that to keep myself sane. Yeah, I'm really admiring this because so people are not supposed to have experiences like this. And then with very little help, you had to digest this and overcome this. And you ended up studying in college. You got a degree. And so I think that's pretty amazing what you did, you know? And, and I just, you know, and I want people to understand because I think a lot of people feel, okay, the prison sentence is over, you come back out. But now you don't have access to things other people have access just because you have been to prison and you served your time, but it's not over. And I was railroaded. They tell me, we admire you. I said, why you admire me? I'm just like any other ordinary man. They said, because you went to prison under false pretenses. I was my last plantation. I call prisons plantation because that's all they are. My last plantation, I was at Hudson Correctional Facility. They are real racist up there. So racist that the civilians got a Confederate flag in the mess hall, right? Now watch this here. But they liked me because I was an artist and I used to do artwork for them. Okay, that's how I made my living in prison. They told me, you shouldn't be here. Can't stand black people. But they like me. And they told me you shouldn't be here. They railroaded you. Instead of saying, I'm glad they got you in here. They said, you shouldn't be here. They railroaded you. So I came home, not angry. Here's the point. I'm going to get revenge. But I did come home. So I went to this lawyer's office. And I told him my story. And he said, they locked you up. How many years for that? He said, that was justifiable homicide. And I wanted the man to take him a case, but he was already involved in cases. And I just got frustrated. So then I lived in Brooklyn on the same street as Eric Adams. And yeah, he's a regular guy. I lived in the brownstone right in best eye. And he said, hey, brother, I didn't know who he was at the time until I saw him on the news um, years ago. I first came home and I told him my story. He said, yeah, you shouldn't have been no time for that. That's self-defense. I just never had the resources to get my minutes and my case looked at. So and now, how do you approach life? I suppose you have to make some peace with that because if you are dwelling on the past, you're not going to be able to move forward, live in the present. Well, here's how I moved forward. And here's how I finally came, as you said earlier, to terms. What I did was just let, finally let go, accepted it. 
because I tried every legal means that I could to get out. So one day I was painting. I was the best wherever I went. Uh, I used to do t-shirts. So finally got out. This guy, Rich, told me. Rich is from Jersey also. And he started hanging out with me. Good guy, great guy. And uh, he said, you're not here because of the crime. You're here to focus on your art. I paid it no mind. But as time went on, I started developing my art more and more. And my business expanded. So finally, I come home. I did write a book. I wrote a book before I got out at Otisville. And it took me something like four or five months to write this book. And maybe somebody will read it. When I got home, I became a co-author with my English comp professor. And we wrote a book together of my story. She was intrigued also. And she had arranged with another college professor whose husband was affiliated with the Actors Guild in Broadway. He had some actors play certain roles of my trial. Judge, DA, me, jury, my mother and father. And this was off Broadway. I couldn't believe this for about two months. Packed, full house. So your art really is your healing journey. I also sent you some videos of me singing. Now that's my healing. Singing. Because it has me be out in front of the people on these trains and to smile and make them smile. Because people in New York are stressed out. We have a fan base. I've met a lot of great people. And most of all, that's my therapy to keep my mind off the nonsense and to allow my good nature and joyful nature to proceed out of me and permeate everybody else. And we look at the positive. I'm self-taught, learn to read, taught people how to read and write, changed my whole perspective on how I see myself. And I try to keep positive, stay busy and creating and just stay away from the negative. And now I'm 68 years old, been through a lot of circumstances, but I'm still here kicking. Well, Glenn, I really appreciate you telling your story and sharing some of your wisdom and the joy that music brings you and that you bring other people with your music. Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much for having me. What Chance is created in New York with cover art by Hernan Brabermann and original music by Max Elias.